This is Women's Tech Radio, a show on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network interviewing interesting women in technology, exploring their roles and how they're successful in technology careers. I'm Paige. And I'm Angela. Well, Angela, today we're going to interview Coraline Ada. She is a 20-year veteran in the software industry. She currently works in the medical industry, um, but she's also the founder of Open Source for Women. And we get into talking a bunch about her stack, what she's doing at work, and then also mentorship and codes of conduct. And it was just a, a really fun, engaging interview. Yes, it is. And before we get into that interview, I want to mention that you can support Women's Tech Radio and Jupiter Broadcasting as a whole by going to patreon.com forward slash today. And uh, believe it or not, we're doing a swag for the holidays giveaway. And there is a Women's Tech Radio specific swag item. And in these show notes, if you're listening to the show within the 24 hours of it being released, there will be a swag link. And uh, if you're a patron member already and had a successful November payment, you'll go into the drawing for this free swag item. And if you're curious as to what the swag items kind of look like, you can go to Instagram.com forward slash Jupiter Broadcasting. I have, uh, we've pretty much done every other show in the network so far. So, um, but no swag is the same. Anyway, if you'd like to get in on swag, you can also sign up now and I will be doing it again in January for successful December payments. That's Patreon.com forward slash today. Awesome. And we get started with our interview by asking what Coraline Ada is up to in technology today. I work for a company called HealthVench. We do medical workflow automation so that doctors and nurses have to spend less time staring at a computer screen and more time with patients. So I do web development, maybe mainly backend API work. Um, and I also do a whole bunch of open source work as well. So I'm pretty much always on the computer. Uh, what stack is your day-to-day in? Um, we use Ruby and Rails. And um, I feel very fortunate that we use very little JavaScript because JavaScript is not a language that makes me happy. I, I, can, I can relate to that. Although JavaScript in comparison is a language that makes me happy at work, I'm currently using Perl, which is a language that does not make me happy. I'm a Perl hacker from the old days. In the 90s, I used Perl a lot and uh, did a lot of open source Perl work as well. But um, I moved on. Yeah, that essentially my company is stuck in the 90s because I, I respect Perl for what it was. And it has made some some jumps forward, but um, personally, I would rather use something like either Ruby or Python for what we're doing, but can't be a chooser sometimes. Uh, when you're working in open source, uh, do you have a preferred stack? Do you tend to stay in Ruby? Ruby is the language that I like the best, so I do tend to do work mainly in Ruby, yeah. And I, I write a lot of um, tools, a lot of tooling for Ruby. So I have a, a bunch of Ruby gems, which are libraries for code analysis, for example, for um, code quality analysis that I'm pretty proud of. Oh, awesome. So like things that look for like code smells or stuff like that? Um, the main one is a gem called Society. And what it does is it finds coupling between classes and it gives you a visual graph of like what's connecting to what. So you can look for clusters of coupling and determine like is your code too tightly coupled or is it just right? And you can, if you're like using it to look for if you're maybe refactoring your system into services you can sort of see where the boundaries are and what what classes sort of cluster together that you might want to build a service around so i'm pretty proud of that one there's a lot of heavy math involved in that one. Oh, that's fantastic it's one of the things i love about being a developer is like we all know each other's problems because we kind of all share the same problems and we're the people that make the tools so like developer tools end up being like super awesome like oh that's exactly that niche thing i would have needed and an accountant would never get 
It's um, it's often about scratching your own itch, especially in open source projects. So, so you mentioned open source a couple of times, and I know that that's kind of a, a passion of yours. But like, I guess my big question is like, why? Why do you believe in open source? Like, what drives you to kind of donate time or however you want to put it and to get involved? Well, I think that we wouldn't have the internet as we have it today without open source, and everything that we do is built on the work of open source developers who came before us. And so I think that it's really important for giving back to that community and moving the whole thing forward. So um, it is volunteer effort, it is free labor, and um, not everyone has the capability to spend the time on it. But I really feel like if you're a developer and you do have the time for it, it's your moral obligation to give back. I like it. It's actually one of the things I like about our community. I think that this is a, more of a prevailing attitude than that, that there's some form of give back built into geek culture, which makes me super happy all the time. Yeah, definitely. So basically, you spend more time on the computer to save doctors and nurses from spending time on the computer. What is your favorite thing that you've worked on to save them time? Um, one of the cool things that we do is like if a prescription request goes through and the patient can't get the prescription without having some lab work done or without a doctor visit, we actually insert that information into the record so that if the prescription is denied, the patient knows exactly what the reason is and knows exactly what next steps to take. And that saves a doctor or a nurse having to evaluate and like look up, well, when was the last time they came in or when was the last time they had blood work done? So saving that time I think is is pretty cool. I really like working, you know, I I, I did startups for a long time. This The company I'm at now is also a startup, but I did a lot of like e-commerce startups and things where I felt like my job was to make someone else money. And I like working in healthcare because I feel like my job is to make people's lives better. Yep. I like, I, I particularly enjoy working in healthcare too. I did it for five years working on, um, well, pretty much everything in a medical supply company. And, uh, and what you just described is something similar to what I did for um, the shipping department which was downstairs I made it so that when somebody selected diapers for a kid it would automatically put a code or well several codes to say you know at this age they can only have this many so don't exceed this number of packs of diapers you know based on the calculation of how many were per pack and things like that and and it definitely made things run a lot smoother I think it's really important when you're working at a company to understand who your customers are and sometimes those customers are internal people and something that's really easy to achieve in code can save so much time on mm -hmm. an operation side so absolutely yeah and that's the other thing is uh it, it also helped with billing you know they could easily see what the problem is for the denial if they looked at the notes that printed with the order I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to develop internal tools for companies especially yes. companies that are not at their heart software companies. Like when my real first step forward in development was working at a healthcare research firm. We're all healthcare people here apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I kind of worked with them to develop some systems to handle their uh, incoming tickets and different things like that, where like before they were just using lots and lots of Excel. And probably post-it notes. No, mostly Excel. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. They, they at least had gotten past Post-it notes. Oh, okay. Behind every successful business is a whole series of Excel spreadsheets. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is true. And every Excel spreadsheet wants to be a web application. Yes. That's true. Or, I've or actually, could be, really. Yeah, I've heard the, the, the business software developer paradigm is like, if an Excel spreadsheet has been emailed, it should be an application. Wow. Exactly. 
So I did something pretty cool at a company a few jobs ago. Um, it was a personal shopping service for men. And um, their business model was that they would assign a stylist to every new customer. And the stylist would engage over social media, over email, over the phone to determine like what the guy's style was and then pick out clothing for him, ship it to him. They paid for what they kept and they shipped the rest pack. That uh, sounds like Huckster. It was Trunk Club. Trunk Club, yep. Um, yeah. But um, they had a problem in that. The engagement with the stylist was a like high cost operation. And if a guy signed up, we didn't discriminate between, you know, is this person going to be a good customer or not a good customer? But we had a lot of data when they were like through the signup process. We had their zip code. We had their name. Um, we had the city in which they lived. So I actually built a machine learning system that would pre-qualify customers as they signed up and determine are they going to use the service or not use the service? Are they going to be priced out of it? And are they going to be big spenders or low spenders? And so we were able to prioritize the queue accordingly. And I used a series of machine learning algorithms to do a lot of filtering on the data that we had. And I trained it on six months worth of production data and was able to achieve a really high predictive um, success rate with that. So those internal tools can make a huge difference and a huge cost savings. Yeah, it's just fascinating what we can do with data these days and, and machine learning and stuff. It's the sky's the limit at this point. Yeah, we also have some moral obligations to the people whose data we're using now in terms of like anonymizing data and um, making sure that the data is secure. There have been so many data breaches where information that maybe should not even be stored has been released to, you know, released by bad, bad actors. So there are some... There's some concerns around that as well as we get into the era of big data. But yeah. I think overall, the it's a net positive. Yeah. And, and there's also like beyond just data breach, there's unintentional um, data sharing. Like we don't want to be target in this moment. Uh, do you know the target story about the the dad? Oh, this is great. No, so I Target has so. essentially developed this thing where they can, they're, one of their biggest markets is actually pregnant women. That's part of why their baby section is so huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have essentially figured out by what you're buying, they can tell as a customer if you're pregnant or not. Hmm. Like they look for like this kind of kinds of lotion and vitamins and like a couple other things. Um, and this is like hmm, five, six years ago at this point. So it was kind of right as the big data was starting to really get going. Mm-hmm. And um, they sent a flyer to a customer like directly because they'll direct mail you things that are appropriate to you. Right. And they direct mailed to this person, this woman who they assumed was a woman, turned out to be a 16 year old girl a flyer about like preparing for your pregnancy. Like here's all the things you can buy at Target. And wow. her dad called Target and was like, what are you doing? Yeah. My daughter's not pregnant. This is terrible. Blah, 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 blah. Turns out. <laughs> turns out she was. Oh my goodness. Yep. So their search algorithm was that good. But like these are the yeah. weird moral moral imperatives where you're like, okay, well, what do I do with this data? Because it, it's not even just a hacker data breach. There's like all these other like flowing repercussions. Yeah. Well, at the same time, though, we all want targeted. We don't want to look at things that aren't relevant to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. prefer to have something that will speak to us. There, uh, there was a great talk by um, Karina Zona about um, the thoughtless use of algorithms. And some of the examples she gave were pretty heartbreaking, like Facebook moments, um, reminding people of... Oh deceased right. relatives and right. um yeah Breakups, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways you can you can use data in a really bad way in a really thoughtless way if you're not paying attention to um your users 
Yeah, I think one of my most liked, I haven't done the, because right now they're doing like your top three most liked pictures. Mm. I haven't even done it first because I don't like authorizing apps like that. But also I've, I'm pretty sure that my divorce picture is going to be <laughs> mm. one of those three. Yeah, You know, like it's not that I don't want to be reminded of it, but like it's just really, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I did the breakup this year and that was definitely several times. Right? It was like, hey, remember this four years ago when you were happy? Right, <laughs> when you were happy. Yep. So we've kind of talked some about open source, but I also know that you are kind of heading up a how do we get women into open source thing? Can you tell me some about that? Sure. Um, I launched a site earlier this year called OS4W. It's open source for women. Depending on who you ask, women in open source constitute between 2 and 10% of the developer population. And we don't even track um, the participation by people of color or people on the LGBTQ, LGBTQ spectrum. So there's just no data available there and for non-binary non developers too. So um, what I said before about, you know, the moral imperative of giving back holds true and people want to participate in open source, but especially for women, there are so many barriers in place. So what OS4W tries to do is it's a directory of projects that have codes of conduct um, and it's also a directory of people who want to pair a program together on open source and um, a directory of people who want to mentor open source developers. So we currently have about 800 curated projects in our database and we have just about 300 users that are actively um, using it to find mentors, to find pair partners and to find projects. Wow, that's fantastic. Do you feel, uh, so I have like eight questions in there. Uh, we'll start at the beginning. Um, what do you feel the code of conduct does to change how and why um, underrepresented people should get involved in projects? In terms of the code of conduct, I um, last year launched something called Contributor Covenant, which is a code of conduct for open source projects. We saw a big push for codes of conduct at tech events, especially conferences in 2014. And then I brought that same thinking to open source projects in 2015. And um, I think the problem is that a lot of the ways that projects are structured um, can be can present barriers to underrepresented populations. There's use of insensitive language. There are you know default pronouns that people use or assumptions of gender. And a lot of projects even have like sexualized or culturally insensitive names that will turn some people off. So I think that one of the ways we can start to address that is by stating in particular, like these are the values of this particular open source community. These are the the things that we hold dear. This is the way we want to treat people. And that can be used as a signaling mechanism to say this is a welcoming and inclusive project. And I think being really overt about that is critical to getting more people to participate. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think safe space is, is always important for all people. Um, I actually recently ha I had to moderate something really difficult at a, an event that I was helping run and um, it was a, a problem because a person who identifies as a minority member in the community had an issue with somebody who identifies as a minor, majority member um, but they addressed the issue in such a like aggressive and semi like verbally violent manner that I, I had to step in and change it and it was a really difficult situation to navigate and I think that this is one of the things that like comes up after we have these sort of codes of conducts is like how do we then enforce it like how do we work with people to to actually encourage adoption in a way that makes both sides feel like this is still a safe space for them do you have any thoughts on that 
Yeah, that's that's an absolutely critical part of it because the worst thing that the worst worse than having no code of conduct is having one that's not enforced. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really critical that an individual community really think about what their enforcement mechanism will look like. Do they want anonymous reporting or do they feel like the accused should be able to face their accuser? Um, those are those are questions that you can't answer with a general code of conduct. That's something that the organizers really need to spend time and effort working through and figuring out what's best for their particular community. But, you know, enforcement is so critical because if you are a member of an underrepresented population and you don't feel like your um, incident was handled correctly, you're going to leave. And there is such a thing as a whisper network. Other people will find out how it was handled, if it was handled badly, and they will avoid you. Yeah, very much. It's it's one of the things that gets talked about actually a lot at... Uh kind of allied events that I work with where they're like, well, you know, what's one of the advantages to being a woman in technology? And it always, the whisper net always comes up. They're like, you guys have like a sisterhood back there that (laughs) that we can't touch. The sisterhood is just as real as the patriarchy. Yeah. We're just, we're just slower, but we're getting there. Yeah. And I've had incidents happen to me personally at events. I went to a women's only event called Right Speak Code in New York City this year. And so it's a woman-only event. I'm a transgender woman, and I got repeatedly misgendered by one of the people there. And I did report it to the organizers, and they did handle it effectively. So I felt really bad that it happened to me, um, but I felt really good about the way the organizers handled the situation. And I felt like they did some good and maybe educated the person in the process. You know, I the way you describe that, I, there's so many parallels uh, to the breastfeeding movement, <laughs> you know? Like we should like just the the type of discrimination, like you never do think that it'll happen to you and then it does. And it, it, it's just so overwhelmingly like, what the heck? Come on. You know, where are we today? But that is really good that uh, it's being handled really well. Yeah. Um, I, I get asked this a lot by allies specifically, but like, how can they learn how to handle this well? And like, and I actually have this question too, you know, I am only one, well, two types of minorities per se. And so there are spaces where I do get to identify as majority. And like when I, cause I, I end up in a role of enforcing a lot. I think it's because I live in the Pacific Northwest, but I'm actually from the, you know, Northeast. Um, so I have a much more mm, confrontational personality than many people here. Uh, but do you have resources that you send people to um, with your code of conduct stuff? Like how, how do you recommend learning maybe nonviolent communication or things that would like, what things do you think help that process? I I usually point people to the geek feminism wiki, which is an amazing resource. It's um, very intersectional and in it's approach to problem solving and coming up with solutions and making recommendations. So I would say that's a valuable starting point. They have um, resources for evaluating the effectiveness of a code of conduct and like what the minimum guidelines are. Um, they do have some information about enforcement and they keep a running list of incidents um, on the website as well so that you can be informed about what events have had problems in the past or what people are bad actors in the community. So I really think in terms of your earlier question, like how do you um, learn how to deal with it? I think um, an ask, don't tell um, perspective is really important because you can't necessarily, you can sympathize but not necessarily empathize with the position of someone outside of your majority group. Um, You really need to ask questions to understand what the person is going through. You have to try and avoid the spotlight effect where 
you you put one person on the spot to represent an entire population of people um, and just listen to their concerns and try and deal with them in an empathetic way. Oh, that's fantastic advice. I appreciate that. Also, in your open source uh, work, you well, you've got the open source for women deal. Um, kind of one of the things that really jumps out to me because it's a passion point for me right now is mentorship. Um, what kind of engagement are you guys looking at when are you people looking at when you are are kind of setting up mentorship? Uh, what does it mean to you? And I always like to ask the question like, do you have any mentees? I mean, you've been around for a while in the software world. Is that something that you pursue? Kind of tell me a story about that. Sure. Um, I do mentor right now. I'm mentoring two women um, who are fairly earlier in their early in their careers. Um, and I get together with them for about an hour or an hour and a half individually every week. And we work through code problems. We talk about um, our jobs and challenges around, you know, being recognized for our work. Um, some of the social aspects of being in a job, some of the social aspects of open source contributions. Um, I try to be a resource to them. Um, in terms of how I found them, I actually created a Google form asking them like what they were looking for in a mentor and if they had previous mentoring experience and what worked for them and what didn't work for them and what their success criteria for mentorship would be. And I try to check in with them every few months to say, you know, how are we doing? How is this relationship working out for you? Is there something I could be doing differently to make this a more effective and make you more successful? So I think that even once that mentorship relationship is established, it's important to have something you can measure it by and go back and refer to those measurements to see what kind of progress you're making. Um, and really, um, an effective mentorship is based on creating a relationship of trust. Um, your mentee has to trust you absolutely, and you have to trust them. And that means you know, being respectful of people's time, sticking to your commitments, um, really trying to be as effective as a mentor as you can possibly be. So I think it's a very personal experience and you have to develop really good one-on-one -on -one communication skills in order to be effective. But it is so rewarding as a mentor for me to see my mentees learn and grow and become successful. Um, one of my mentees, um, I'm a frequent conference speaker. I spoke at 16 events last uh, this year. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, thank you. I love speaking. Um, and one of my mentees actually gave her first conference talk and it just filled me with such pride that she was making these strides forward in her career and that I was some small part of that. That's fantastic. Do you have a mentor? I don't. And I actually, I wish I did, but I think that the later in your career you get, I've been doing software development for 20 years now professionally. And I think the later in your career you get, you tend to rely more on peers and those mentor relationships are increasingly hard to find because you have become the authority and it's hard to find someone who has, you know, more experience than you do. Um, even though like your peer network can provide different perspectives um, and hopefully you have a support network in place that can give you sort of emotional support or, you know, help you help you out with challenges you've had. But um, I miss having a mentor. I had a mentor early on in my career and um, he's the reason that I'm as successful as I am now. He gave me the, the real push. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm giving back now, but yeah, I do, I do wish that I had a mentor as well. This is, so this is actually my passion point right here is I, I would like to find a way to make mentorship happen at that higher level. Cause I think that, and I think we'll have a trickle down effect. I think that if we can find, especially mentors for women in mid to late career, especially with the turnover rate that we're having, that is just 
it's mind-bogglingly terrifying to me that more women are leaving the software industry, like the tech industry, than are coming in. And we've been increasing the numbers that have com- are coming in for years now. Yeah, I think there's an emphasis on getting new people in and people thinking about women in tech and minorities in tech as a pipeline problem. And we're doing so little to address the people that are leaving and giving them the support they need in their careers. And as individuals, um, I think that's a real that's a real shame. So so I have to ask because I'm kind of working on this project. Um, what would you look for in a mentor as someone who is a, a senior in the industry, like really a leader at this point? Um, would you look outside your domain? Are there skills that you feel like you're missing in software or outside of software that you look for? Like, you know, if you could paint the picture of the perfect mentor for you, what would it look like? Sure. I think the most important quality I would look for is someone with a great deal of natural empathy. And because a lot of the struggles that we face as developers are social problems um, or emotional problems, more so, I think, than technical problems, especially as you advance in your career. So looking for someone who was very compassionate, um, very understanding and a good listener. Um, I am not the sort of person who needs a lot of advice but I need a lot of encouragement and I need um, sort of validation that what I'm, the work I'm doing is the right path or is valuable work. Um, so I would look for someone who could guide me along those sorts of axes as opposed to someone who's like maybe super technical. Yeah, I think that's actually been the, the feedback that I've been getting is it, it, it starts to become more about guidance and less about instruction, I guess. And then also uh, that the soft skills, like kind of the, the professional development that especially and I think that this is true for men in software too that we don't tend to uh, address soft skills with engineers like ever which is part of why we end up with that terrible problem where we pr- promote a like a lead developer into a management role and then they bomb yeah or we expect senior developers to be able to mentor and they don't have the emotional intelligence to do it I think it's really sad that in our field we place people on a pedestal who are you know, very intellectual, um, very um, smart technically, but we really undervalue the so-called soft skills. I don't really like that term. Um, I like to think of it as people skills or social skills, but um, I think we do that to our own detriment because I think that without emotional intelligence, you can't be a good collaborator, you can't be a good mentor, you can't be a good teacher, um, you can't be an effective member of a team. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if your development is ego-driven, you're going to be a sole contributor um, and that's going to limit what you can do in your in your professional life. Yeah, no, exactly. I, although I do have to say that I prefer the term soft skills to some of the engineers I know who use the term wetware skills. Wetware? Mm-hmm. Meaning like uh, wetware means people. Like, like there's software and wetware. And because we're mostly water, we bleed, things like that. Uh-huh. It's weird. Okay. Geeks. Um, well, before we wrap this up, are there any websites that you would like to promote? Um, you can find out about me and my work and my talks at where.coraline.codes, which I think is an awesome totally. URL. <laughs> um, I am a panelist on a podcast um, that's specifically targeting the Ruby programming language, and you can find out about that. It's called Ruby Rogues at devchat.tv. Um, there's Contributor Covenant, the open source code of conduct that I, discuss, that I discussed at contributor-covenant.org and OS for Women at osforw.org. And I have to jump in and say that I have been a Ruby Rogues listener for years. Um, and even when I was just very getting started, I had finished my first uh, Rails for Zombies tutorial. I jumped in on Ruby Rogues and I found it like engaging enough that even as a rote beginner, I could get something out of the podcast. So highly recommend 
that's awesome. Awesome to hear. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Caroline Ada. We look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women's Tech Radio. Remember, you can find links to websites mentioned in this episode over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just click on Shows, Women's Tech Radio, find this episode, which is episode 48, and scroll down. You can also find us on iTunes. If you've got something to say or you'd like to have someone interviewed on the podcast, we're always looking for interesting people. Shoot us an email at wtr at jupiterbroadcasting.com or check us out on Twitter at heywtr. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.